Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today's guest is Anna Brailsford, the Chief Executive of Code First Girls. They have already trained 30,000 women in skills of the future. But last week, they announced even greater ambitions with a four and a half million Series A round to power that growth even further and even more broadly. Anna came in to the company as chief exec after it initially been founded by entrepreneur first duo Matt and Alice. Alice has already appeared on Jimmy's Jobs at the beginning of Series 3 and Matt will be appearing later in this series to talk about their latest book, How to Be a Founder. It's a great episode to listen to Anna and their future plans for what they have in store, for how we tackle one of the biggest challenges for our economy, which is how do we skill up as many people to do jobs of the future. So I hope you enjoy it. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Anna, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you for having me. What's in a name? Code First Girls sounds a bit like Ronsell, really. does what it says on the tin, but I'd still <laughs> love to know where it came from. Uh, it's one of the benefits of calling your brand exactly what you do, right? Well, believe it or not, a lot of people ask us, why, why the name? Why is the name so important? And when I first came to Code First Girls, one of the first things I did is I actually tested whether we should change the name. And I went out to our community. We are one of the largest communities of women coders in the UK and across Europe now. Uh, and I asked them and I said, what do you feel about the name? How does that sit with you? And the community absolutely love it. It's really part of their identity. Ultimately, we're about coding. We're about coding education. And we create dedicated spaces for women to come together and feel empowered and kind of own the sense of being a, a girl in code. Ultimately, empower them to be able to get jobs uh, and enter the industry. And how big is your community now? 80,000 now. We have plans to provide over a million opportunities for women to learn how to code over the next five years. What we're seeing is significant expansion, not just in the UK, uh, on a very regional basis in every region, but also uh, across different parts of Europe and in the USA as well. So our community is becoming a global community. Um, organically. This is perhaps an obvious question, but I think that you shouldn't be afraid to ask the obvious questions. And I'm sure it was part of the consideration when it came to the branding. But what is coding? How do you define it as a skill? So how do we define coding as a skill? I mean, it's ubiquitous, right? It's absolutely everywhere. It underlies so many things. And in fact, part of what we do is educating women as to where it might be applicable. 
I take the example consistently of my 10-year-old niece, always on TikTok. It's absolutely fascinating to start breaking that down, even on that level, and saying, okay, what sits behind that? Why is that so important? And why do you need to be part of that future? Why do you need to help create the future and be a maker of the future? And ultimately, being able to understand code enables you to create products for both men and women and underrepresented groups where everybody can feel like it was designed around them as a user. So a lot of what we do is just breaking down those barriers and understanding that it's absolutely everywhere um, and not being part of it, you, you're probably going to miss a trick for the future. And so how do you explain to your 10-year-old, right? Because that's a really interesting challenge there and use TikTok as a great example right I mean we've I was very resistant to doing anything on TikTok but it's been amazing actually the last few months like how much we've kind of grown and how many new listeners we're getting through the platform for the show so, but talk us through kind of like how you explain it to a to a 10 year old because like you say it's ubiquitous it's a bit difficult in some ways because I mean I'll be very honest she's had a really bad experience at school um with python and i get to see the materials they they send home because i have to do a lot of the homework with her and a lot of the stuff is pre-recorded content it's not pitched at the level it should be pitched at it's not fun it's uh something that is intensely boring in the way it's taught and with her in particular i've had a little bit of an uphill battle because all of the educational materials she's received so far are actually in my opinion not really fit for purpose and they put her off. And as soon as you put someone off in that way, I think it's very, very hard to, to sort of go back to. I sort of, the equivalent of, um, I think, introducing something like Shakespeare far too early <laughs> from an yeah. English language perspective. It's daunting. It's overwhelming. And I, I think it puts young children off. So a lot of it is how do we make this more fun? And how do we actually build with it? How can we build visual representations or building projects as opposed to thinking this is just random lines of, of language or numbers yeah i think that's a really interesting way of putting it right and yeah like you say introducing shakespeare puts people off for uh, for a lifetime you've been involved in edtech for a long time right i mean it's something that's kind of exploded with the pandemic lots of online learning you know lots of pre-recorded things now that never existed before but you pretty much spent your entire career in it what drove you to it in the first place they my, my mum was a was an entrepreneur and she had a kind of early sort of ed tech business um so I used to come home from summers at university you know around the dinner table we discussed things like product and P&L um because obviously I was having so much fun in my summer holidays <laughs> but what you don't realize I think is when you have a family business the extent to which it influences uh, your ability to learn very quickly. I suppose it's no surprise I ended up in this industry and I ended up wanting to build my own, my own company, uh, my own products. Also, it's so funny. People say, was that sort of by design? Like, did you like mean to end up in ed tech? And honestly, I don't think I did. I think it's something that's grown on me over time. If you ask me what I wanted to do as a child, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. If you said to me ed tech back then, I would have been like, no, I, I want to be maverick. Yeah. 
Um, and one of the things on your CV was that you were the commercial director of LinkedIn. And now I'm sure a lot of people that listen uh, have a bit of a love hate relationship with uh, with LinkedIn. <laughs> so it'd be great to hear how you how you ended up there because it wasn't a very sort of um, common route, perhaps. I was the commercial director of uh, Lynda.com, and Lynda.com was a, a really big household name uh, in the states. Um, and I was in charge of a lot of the commercial growth. Um, across Europe, so bringing Blinda.com to Europe. And we ended up being acquired. We had a crazy growth trajectory. It was, it was literally, you know, 100% year-on-year growth. And we ended up being acquired by LinkedIn. Um, and that was the start of the creation of LinkedIn Learning, which is obviously the learning platform that sits within LinkedIn. And one of the reasons LinkedIn decided to do that, and it was such a strategic target for them, is because LinkedIn are essentially plotting six data points about every individual that goes on that platform. And they'll plot where you went to university, they'll plot your job, they'll have various details about you as an individual. And one thing that they were missing, the one thing they really, really wanted to do was to fill the data gaps around skills and knowledge, and then link that to things like ideal candidates for jobs, um, the type of skills that are gonna be required in order to provide a promotion. So the acquisition of Linda.com enabled them to sort of fill out their ultimate data points. They call it the economic sort of mapping of, of skills um, for, for every member of the global workforce. I mean, that interests me so much because I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in the world at the moment is there are more and more skills available, right? And this comes back into the kind of ethos of this podcast that, that it's never been better time to be a young person or person of any age trying to plan out a career because there's so much opportunity so many different jobs but that also comes with the problem of trying to work it out is already difficult and trying to self-assess your skills is quite a challenge so talk to us and you know we had Nadim Zawahi on the show when he was education secretary saying you practically need a PhD to understand the kind of UK skill set uh, lists that are out there so talk to us a bit about what you think are the most important kind of skills that people need for the future well, the first most important skill to have is is knowing how to navigate and apply yourself, right? And what I what I say by mean by that, I graduated at type of the recession. I think at the time I must have applied like a hundred graduate positions. I studied literature and history, so you can imagine. <laughs> even though I got like a, a first in my masters, literally they were like English and history grad from Edinburgh University. I think I ended up getting something like three interviews off the back of that process. And what shocked me personally the extent to which we don't actually teach people okay, this is now how you get into the workplace this is how you get your first graduate role I didn't even think hang on I, can I create my own company at this point mm. so I think a lot of it is looking at different options and routes into those options now something that we've done at Code First Girls where we've been massively successful is we've made a shift Code First Girls used to be let's educate the whole world provide as much free education as possible when I came in, something that was really, really important for me was that I wanted to actually provide employment. So now we don't actually offer education unless we know it's going to convert to some form of employment within certain ratios. So that's very, very important. Whatever market we go into, we already know we've got the jobs lined up and we work backwards from the skill sets required to actually do the work and to do the jobs. And the women are pre-matched to that process. So we're collecting data to try and understand 
how well suited these women are both to this profession but also to the particular organization we're working on behalf of. And through that, we get a really, really great match. Um, and, and that, for me, is the ultimate bringing education, skills, uh, and employment together. And what do you think that Anna Brailsford would be doing if she was 22 and 22, right? It's one of our kind of favorite questions. So you did literature and <laughs> history. What what degree do you think you would do and, and what job would you be looking to do? Or sector? I mean, I'm going to have to say computer science, aren't I? But <laughs> You know what? I, I don't think you need a computer science degree um, to do my job. That's a very controversial thing to say. I mean, look, we preach you don't need a computer science degree. That's the whole point of us. You can be an intellectual property lawyer. You can be an accountant. You can be a fresh graduate. You can actually not even be in work or education. And we can still help train you to give you a fair advantage if you were interviewing against a computer science student. So I don't think that's needed. I don't think that's required. And you know what? It made me who I am today. So I don't know whether I'd take any of it back. Um, I don't think I would. I think it, it gives you a lot of, it gives you the ability to communicate. It gives you the ability to analyze. And these are all things that are needed to build business, which ultimately is, is what I've become, right? A, a builder. It's, um, yeah, I think that's really true. And yeah, I graduated kind of similar time. And, and being an entrepreneur, from the outset wasn't really an option having said that i think it is quite hard actually this kind of stereotype of being an entrepreneur in your early 20s the kind of zuckerberg thing is is quite hard actually because you really don't know much having said that two of the key people behind code first girls uh matt clifford and alice bentonick who's been on the podcast before of entrepreneur first uh did it so i'm, I'm aware of completely going back and sort of uh you know saying those things um about it but what what are the kind of key components in being a good entrepreneur then because you came in as ceo originally and that's quite different to, to founding a company it is um, but i think it depends what stage the company's at when i came in i was given a remit and freedom by matt and alice to build a product to create a new business model and to also rebrand the company and all those things happened simultaneously. So they were launched at the same time around about November of 2020. And after we did that, the um, company 10xed both in terms of revenue, but also in terms of its user base as well. So I think actually sometimes bringing a situation together where you're given a level of freedom and you're allowed to build something new and build something very successful. I actually think that that's quite a creative process. And sometimes when you bring those expertise into a business, I think it, it can be absolutely game-changing um, in terms of what, what gets developed. In terms of what makes a good entrepreneur, I was literally talking to Matt about this. I think yesterday we were talking about this because obviously he's just released a book with Alice. And overwhelmingly, one thing I've learned from, from being at Code First Girls is perseverance, like the amount of times you get knocked back or something is thrown at you, which you will never see coming. I feel like on a day-to-day, -day, I might wear a hundred different hats and be ready for every possible circumstance. And at the end of each day, I reflect and I say, you know what? I thought I knew enough. I know nothing at all. I think that ability to learn and reflect and iterate and get better and also forgive yourself and be kind to yourself because 
you're not always going to get it right. But if you can do that, I think you can build a really, really great company. Yeah, I think the perseverance, resilience point, feeling in reflective moves is three years since I left number 10. And it is, if I could go back and tell myself one thing, it would be get used to hearing no. And once you kind of get over that and get used to it, if you can turn then the no's into fuel to kind of drive yourself, then then it's sort of, then you can kind of create like a lot of momentum. Jimmy, I love, I'm learning to love the word no. Yeah, exactly. You're giving it to me. <laughs> exactly that. And look, the like big, exciting times at Foot at Code First Girls. Can you talk us through some of the kind of recent news and so on? Yeah, so uh, Code First Girls has just raised, um, which is obviously a, a real watershed moment we never raised before. Uh, we raised four and a half million. Yeah. And so we have a lead partner. Uh, in active that's our institutional investor and a whole array of glittering female angels and also added to that some fantastic male allies as well really really big names um in business some of them are also clients of code first girls uh which is fantastic and now investors um in terms of what we're going to do with the money we have two really big goals first one i mentioned at the start we're going to provide one million learning opportunities um, for women to learn how to code over the next five years. And the second is we're going to um, enable um, over £1 billion worth of economic opportunity in helping women gain employment and join the global tech workforce. So we have conversion rates throughout our education processes into women gets, getting certain levels of starting salaries uh, and joining organizations or indeed starting their own businesses and talk us through some of the different jobs that you're kind of providing for right because sometimes these skills can seem the language can sometimes be deliberately complicated i find or not deliberately but over complicated so talk us through those jobs that you're providing for clients so predominantly software engineers full stack um, we will also do a lot of data engineering and data science. And also, you know, there's lots of conversions around those disciplines. So, for example, we've just had a lot of material published in the press around our relationship with GCHQ. Mm. Um, a lot of the security services were creating, helping to create the kind of um, cybersecurity force of the future, which, you know, is going to have a lot more women in it, uh, which makes us a lot more safer as a country and harder to predict and to um, attack as a result there's lots of applications of what we teach um i believe what why is that why is that why is that the case just interesting why does it make us harder to attack having more women i don't doubt it but i'd be interested in the the science there's numerous things around this but the very basics of it if you pull everything apart if you if you create something by people that just look and sound the same, and I'm talking about infrastructures, I'm talking about platforms, I'm talking about AI and ML here, it's going to be a lot more predictable. Um, the more you can diversify the minds that actually are creating these infrastructures and, and platforms, the harder it's going to be to penetrate them. It's exactly the same in any form of diversity, right? In any form of decision-making. The more you can bring uh, different minds into that scenario, the more ultimately you can um, problem solve in different ways and come at the problem 
uh, in a different way. And what we've seen from the latest publications from the likes of GCHQ is that moving more women into uh, the front line is is actively um, helping to reduce things like online terrorism, for example. They've ever actually said that getting women in to challenge the status quo and challenge how things are being built uh, is making significant difference to the country's safety. Specifically, we've got BAE Systems coming on the show next week as it happens. Um, and I know that there was stuff in The Guardian about you guys working together. So talk to us a little bit about that. I'm also going to ask them probably a lot more <laughs> about the work they do, but I'd be intrigued on that line. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to the things that we, we do with GCHQ and the likes of Rolls-Royce Defence as well. I think the BAE Systems, their prerogative, as I understand it, is that creative problem-solving. Um, and how women come at the problem um, differently. Uh, I think I talked in the article uh, recently in The Guardian about um, applications, for example, of things like AI and ML. If you look at something like that and how that operates within the defense sector, anything that is created in that space is going to be dependent on a data set, right? The first thing to make sure is that data set isn't biased. The second thing to make sure is that the the individuals creating those systems, creating those algorithms, putting the shell around the data and making it useful, and then ultimately leading to can computers start replicating human decision-making processes, the individuals involved in that, governing that, scrutinizing that, have to be as diverse as we can possibly make them. Otherwise, we literally we create just something in one guise and, and one view. And that's incredibly dangerous and renders us, I believe, incredibly vulnerable in something like the defence sector. And do you think, like, you know, going back to your 10-year-old niece, that, I mean, obviously a lot of these uh, skills have been dominated by men in the past. Why is that the, the case, right? I mean, obviously it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling kind of cycle as well, a little bit, right? If only men doing it and so on, but... Why did it sort of start out like that? I mean, you know, the Ada Lovelace is, is quoted lots, right, as a sort of like heroine of it all. But why did it end up going down that route, do you think? I think it's it's so multifaceted. I think we could write a dissertation on this. One thing that sticks out to me, really sticks out, and again, I'm reflecting on my niece here, is the extent to which girls are labelled from a really young age. Hmm. They just, they, they slap a label on them. And the label is typically oh, you're not good at STEM subjects. So therefore, you should probably pick more creative GCSEs or, or more towards the humanities. And as we go through GCSEs and then we go through to A-levels and then we go through to university choices, before we know it, these girls have been labelled to such an extent they actually don't feel good enough anymore. They don't feel that they can do it. What's really interesting is all of our research shows that women who are at university or slightly later on in life that might be a career switcher, they're the ones that are making the decisions to switch when they're starting to think about changing their jobs or employment at university, even though they picked an alternative degree discipline to something like computer science. I think women need a safe space to say, do you know what? I can change my mind and you don't have to label me. And Code First Girls enables them to do that. And I think that's quite special because it's almost like the system's working against them. Yeah, I think it's true. I also think particularly 
when you get into a professional career, whatever it is, it's actually very, very hard to kind of leave it. There becomes a lot of, oh, we're all going to have four or five different careers and so on. Well, actually, if, if you're a lawyer, that's probably not the case or whatever. Yeah, If you're in one of those high-end professional uh, jobs, it becomes very hard to leave. It's not just salary either. It's just what you get labeled as. Like, um, it's really interesting. Pip Jameson said on the second ever episode of Jimmy's Jobs that it was a real challenge to kind of find female mentors at the beginning. And she ended up having to target male technology leaders who'd got daughters was the way that she did it. Now, this is going back a number of years now, but it's it's always kind of stuck with me. And I just wondered how you'd found kind of finding mentors, who'd mentored you. And obviously that's kind of like a big part of what you're trying to do with the community at Code First Girls is to create a community of that nature. I mean, I think I was quite lucky because obviously I had the tour de force that was my mum, you know, the, is, is naturally probably your first mentor is probably going to give you those those first initial lessons. But I agree with Pip in, in some ways. Like when I first entered the workplace, not only was I one of the youngest directors, but I was also the only woman in the room. Um, and that can be tough. And I think my first sort of professional mentor, like outside of my mum, was a guy. And I completely agree with what Pip says. It was a guy that had a daughter um, that I think saw something in me and wanted to ultimately help me professionally and believed in me uh, and believed in my potential. I have noticed somewhat of a difference um, when a guy in a high power position does have a daughter and he wants to give back. So I agree with that. That was, you know, just as transformative as the sort of the, the type of lessons that I, that I got from my mum. But from a, from a data perspective, from a stats perspective, I believe it's something like 40% of women in our community believe not having a mentor uh, inhibits them actually entering the industry, which is a quite a scary number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that really, uh, really is. Um, I think it's quite important over the next sort of few months and and years like the the job market has been very very hot and it's definitely been a kind of like employees market in that side despite you know the the problems of the pandemic and so on your story earlier of applying for 100 jobs and getting three interviews really struck with me struck resonance in terms of you know we are probably going to go through a another big recession and which will be the first time almost in a decade that's really happened. So again, it almost becomes like lost memory. What will be your advice for those that are graduating now? Because those that are graduating this year, next year, uh, they've had a pretty tough run of it anyway, like with COVID and so on. And they are probably going to have to do um, similar numbers of of applications. Um, I guess the advice is, what advice have you got for the resilience? and, And what advice have you got to try and stand out as well? I mean, take take the lessons of an entrepreneur, like love the word no, because uh, you're going to get a lot of no's. Having said that, I cannot stress enough how important it is to understand your own worth and how hard it is when you get 100 no's to keep going and to, to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. Not everything comes at once and it's not always perfect. It really, really isn't. It could be that you use, for example, your first job as a stepping stone. But all of that is, is vital experience. Nothing's lost. 
I sometimes, when I talk to fresh graduates, they'll have this idea of this is what I'm going to be. And we all know, because of the way that we've gone through our own changes, when you look back and you reflect and you think, well, what did I want to be when I left university? Because it's so different from what I am now. And that's also okay. So recognizing that you're going to go, going to go on a journey and simultaneously do a bit of research about things like supply and demand. In our sector, we're looking potentially at one qualified woman for every 115 roles by 2025. What that effectively means is if you are a woman that has the ability to be qualified in this space, and let's face it, we're willing to give you the free education, you're going to be in high demand and you're probably going to be able to pick your employer as opposed to your employer picking you. So that, that would just be some, some, we look at just other degree disciplines as well. Like for example, take something like forensic psychology that has a really low conversion rate into a job because there's hardly any jobs in that field. And you've been specifically trained to do that. What we find at Code First Girls is that those forensic psychologists are absolutely right for converting into something like technology because of the way their mind operates and the way they've been trained to think. So don't ever under, underestimate how much you can train your mind to think a certain way and how much you can adapt to another industry where there's a unique supply and demand issue. And let's face it, within a certain amount of time, these individuals are looking at things like six-figure salaries potentially as well. Yeah. So really well-paid industries that want you to think about different applications and how you might convert what you've done to something that's truly needed for, you know, within the uh, economy. I think that's really, uh, really good advice on that side of things. And what is a book or something that you have consumed lately that you would recommend to people? So I came back from holiday about two weeks ago, which is really rare for me to be even able to have a holiday, which is not great advice, by the way. I don't, I don't advise anyone to say that. But whilst I was away, I, t- I try and use my time to read because I can just escape. Um, I used to read a shed load of fiction, having studied literature. It's really funny. I've now moved towards authors like Stephen Pinker and okay. more kind of like, you know, social psychology, how civilizations developed and how, what lessons we can take from, from um, in the business world. Last I was away, I read um, Black Box Thinking. Oh, yeah, um, by Matthew Saeed. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you've read it, but yeah. I find that fascinating, not least of which because my stepdad's in the airline industry. So we're kind of obsessed by planes as a family. Um, and the way that the airline industry um, groups their data, makes it open and accessible, iterates every single day, and everything is an education process. And nobody feels shame about coming forward and saying, yep, that mistake was made. These are the learnings. And it compares it to the medical profession uh, and, and the difference in, in how mistakes potentially are closed down, the data is not released in the same way, and how much that costs, for example, us as a country every single day. And then the lessons business can learn from that, the difference between closed-loop thinking and, and open-loop thinking. And if you can create open-loop thinking within your business and say to people within your organization, do you know what? It's okay to fail. Let's create a safe environment where you can fail. And equally, what's most important is what did we learn from that? So, yeah, so I read that whilst I was away and I was like, oh, I need to introduce a bit more of this into Code Fest Girls. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so much for the reading to take your mind off it all and, and so on. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, is, it is an amazing book. Um, and as a final question, you know, pass the mic to another kind of female entrepreneur is something that we have on, on the show. Um, I'd love you to recommend some other inspiring female entrepreneurs you've come across. Oh, inspiring female entrepreneurs that I've come across. There's a whole raft of them. I'm a big fan of Pip. Yeah. Um, another Edinburgh alumni. I love, I love Pip's enthusiasm and her passion and, and, and how different she is. And she comes at things in a very different way. And we did a whole episode with her about um, her dyslexia and, and how that actually enables her to think differently and creatively um, problem solve. Uh, big fan of Michelle Kennedy, um, founder of Peanut. Yes. Trying to think who else we've got in our room. Um, we've got numerous on- entrepreneurs that are that are backing Creative uh, First Girls, but those are the two that come top of mind. Definitely. Well, we will. Um, we should probably get Pip back on the show because it's been literally two years now since we started. So uh, that would be a, a good one to see how uh, her journey is uh, is coming on. Uh, Anna, thank you so much. I know it's been a crazy busy time with everything that's been going on, but it's so exciting to hear all about it. And hopefully we can do this in person later in the year. Amazing. Lovely to see you, Jimmy. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. I know many podcasts brag about the size of their audience, but few can say they are listened to by the biggest name in the country. I wanted to ask you what your favourite podcast was, aside from Jimmy's Jobs, of course. Jimmy's Jobs is obviously my favourite podcast. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.